Welcome to Gnostic Insights. My name is Dr. Sid Rop, and I'm your host. Welcome back to Gnostic Insights. This past week I exchanged some good correspondence with a listener of Gnostic Insights, and she had a good question. And I, I'm i going to, this week, in this episode, lay a foundation for answering her question. I had originally done the question and answer as one long podcast, but, you know, it's pretty heavy material, and so I thought it would be best to break it up into two different episodes. So we're going to take another deep dive into the tripartite tractate. And we're going to look at the origin of the eon known as Logos, which in Valentinian Gnosticism, Logos is the eon who fell. So we're going to take another look near the end of chapter 5 of the tripartite tractate as to how it was that Logos, the Eon, was even created in the first place. And then what was the nature of Logos, and how and why did Logos fall? And that will set up the groundwork, the scriptural groundwork, so that in our next episode, one week from today, I'll answer the question that the listener had which basically boils down to, okay, let's say an eon fell and created this material universe, and now the demiurge is down on the rocky planet. But why, oh why, did consciousness have to leave the ethereal plane and come down here to redeem the demiurge? Why, why not just abandon the fall and everybody stay happy and tucked up inside of the pleroma of the fullness of God? So, why consciousness was her question, and we're going to specifically answer that question next week. So, this week we're going to set up some scriptures at the end of chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6 of the Tripartite to give us a foundation in order to answer that question. I'm going to be reading from the Tripartite Tractate of the Nag Hammadi, and this is that uh, version that's posted online for free by Adderidge and Mueller. Those were the translators. So I've got it in this Nag Hammadi library with James Robinson as the editor. But it's the same version that they post for free over at gnosis.org. And then you look up Nag Hammadi and then the tripartite tractate. And they'll have it there and you can read it. It's the same version I'm reading from now. So, Near the end of section 5, which is titled Aeonic Life, and then we'll go into the beginning of section 6, which is called The Imperfect Begetting by the Logos. Picking up with section 5, it says, It is by virtue of his will that the Father, the one who is exalted, is known. That is, 
by virtue of the spirit which breathes in the totalities and gives them an idea of seeking after the unknown one. Just as one is drawn by a pleasant aroma to search for the thing from which the aroma arises, since the aroma of the Father surpasses these ordinary ones. So that sentence, that long sentence, says that the Father can't be known except for sharing his spirit, his will, into the totalities, which are also called the eons or the all. The Father shares his Holy Spirit with them, and it's similar to an aroma that wafts off of something that smells delicious. And then you seek out the source of the aroma. And that is why the this metaphor with the aroma is used. It's because those of us who come from the Holy Spirit, those of us who started out with the Father as undifferentiated consciousness, but then we progressed into these, the Son and the Pleroma, the hierarchy of God, that we remember the Father because it to us is a sweet fragrance that causes us to seek him out always. It's just saying, by virtue of his will, that is the Father's will, he is known by the Spirit which breathes into the totalities and breathes, that is, inspires, right? Breath is called respiration, isn't it? So it's the same spires. So inspiration is when we divine breath from above. So the pleroma, the eons of the hierarchy, they are inspired by what is coming down the pike to them from the Father through the Son and then into the hierarchy of the pleroma. Then we are the fruit of the pleroma. And that Holy Spirit comes right on down with us in the form of that inspired fragrance of God. Again, more about the aroma. It says, His sweetness leaves the eons in ineffable pleasure, and it gives them their idea of mingling with him who wants them to know him in a united way and to assist one another in the spirit which is sown within them. It says that, Though existing under a great weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, they are renewed in an inexpressible way since it is impossible for them to be separated from that in which they are set in an uncomprehending way. Because they will not speak, being silent about the Father's glory, about the one who has the power to speak, and yet they will take form from him. So that's just expressing that the Father has withheld from the eons the details of his magnitude. They cannot speak of him. He is inexpressible. Yet they have him hidden in a thought. They have the Father hidden in a thought. And we do too. They are silent about the way the Father is in his form and his nature and his greatness, while the eons have become worthy of knowing through his spirit that he is unnameable and he is incomprehensible. It is through his spirit, that is the Father's, which is the trace of the search for him, that he provides them the ability to conceive of him and to speak about him. And the same is true with us. When we are on the path of Gnosis, it is the trace of the Father's Holy Spirit coming down from above that we are reading, that we are writing, that is the light from above. And then it says, each one of the eons is a name. That is, 
each of the properties and powers of the Father, since he exists in many names, which are intermingled and harmonious with one another. Okay, now this is a description of how it is that the eons of the hierarchy of the fullness of God sit together. Each one of those eons has its own name, which for it is like an address, right? It's the eon's name, whatever the name is. There's innumerable names. The fullness of God is a pretty big place. <laughs> so there's lots of eons. There's lots of names. And, and each one has their own unique name. So just like you have your fairly unique name, I have my fairly unique name. And then you add our various traits to go along with those unique names that we have. And that's our name. And with the eons of the fullness, each of their names is a discrete and singular, it says, property and power of the Father. So each one is merely a descriptor, is a word that speaks an attribute of the otherwise incomprehensible and undivided one. It says he exists in many names which are intermingled and harmonious with one another. Again, that is an expression of that, what I picture as that pyramidal or triangular illustration of the all, right? Of those golden orbs sitting in that pyramidal stack. Each one of them has a unique location. They've got a unique name. Their neighbors are unique from anybody else's neighbors because, you know, they got the guy on their left, on their right, above and below, and catty corner, like we're working a, a crossword puzzle or something. They've got their unique location. but it, And everybody has a slightly different unique location. And each has a slightly different power or duty or responsibility. And they're all intermingled, and they are all harmonious with one another. And that's what makes this the pleroma, the fullness of the eons. It's all of the derivatives of what was the Son of God who exists just prior to their instantiation. So they are all expressions of the harmonious relationship between all of the different characteristics of the Son. The Son being just the One, undifferentiated. But then, like the rays of a sun bursting out from the starburst in the middle, are each of these eons of the all. And each one is a unique location, unique name, unique duties. And then once they were broken out, that's when they named themselves. Once they had their names, they sorted themselves into this hierarchy of the fullness of God. And that's when they went from being the starbursts around a central axis to a pyramidal shape, because now it is a hierarchy. Whereas before, it was merely differentiations of one central axis. And he says that it's through this differentiation of all of the eons that it becomes possible to conceive of the Father and then to speak about him, but only in their aggregate form. So the pleroma of the hierarchy of the fullness of God is a way to be able to conceive of the Father because we can see the various attributes of the fullness. And each one's a, a little piece of the Father. Okay, going on, it says, It is possible to speak of him, that is the Father, because of the wealth of speech. Just as the Father is a single name because he is a unity, yet is innumerable in his properties and names. Yeah, I, I don't see the problem people have with 
oh, is it one God or is it many gods? Is it one God or is it a trinity? There is one consciousness, and it flows down along this path that we happen to be at the terminal end of. It's one consciousness. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same knowledge. It's the same love. But it's manifesting like the way a rainbow light is split up on the other side of the prism. It's the one white light coming in, and then it is differentiating into innumerable and immeasurable, there's so many, attributes of that white light. Not only the colors of the rainbow that we can see, but infinite amount of colors that we can't even begin to describe or see. So that is how the undifferentiated becomes the one, and the one becomes the many, and the many, or the all, fruits and sends down consciousness. It says, The emanation of the totalities which exist from the one who exists did not occur according to a separation from one another as something cast off from one who begets them. Like when a mother gives birth to children, the children then have a separate location than the mother. They're now outside of the mother. That's a separation. But we're not like that. We're still within the fullness. We're still within the Son. We're still within the Father. Rather, their begetting, it says, is like a process of extension, as the Father extends himself to those whom he loves, so that those who have come forth from him might become him as well. Carrying on. Just as the present eon, though a unity, is divided by units of time, and units of time are divided into years, and years are divided into seasons, seasons into months, months into days, days into hours, hours into moments, so too the eon of the truth, since it is a unity and a multiplicity, receives honor in the small and the great names according to the power of each to grasp it. By way of analogy, like a spring, which is what it is, yet flows into streams and lakes and canals and branches, or like a root spread out beneath trees and branches with its fruit, or like a human body which is partitioned in an invisible way into members of members, primary members, and secondary, great and small. Wow, isn't that something? And to imagine that this book was written 2,000 years ago. That is such a, a wonderful description of fractals and description of how consciousness is a branching fractal pattern that just keeps coming through and through and through. And we carry within us a fractal of the eon of truth. And they likened it to time, right? Being these gigantic lengths of time and yugas, and then it becomes a year, and then it becomes a month and a week, and a blah, 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 smaller, smaller, and smaller. That is time passage. But the eon of truth is just like that and just keeps getting fractalated smaller and smaller and smaller in order to inform everything from the great to the small. Now, that brings us to chapter 6, which is called The Imperfect Begetting by the Logos. Okay, this next stanza I'm going to skip because it's quite complicated and it probably deserves its own episode. Okay, so the next sentence says, So that it might be in this way, 
The one who wished to give honor does not say anything to him about this, except only that there is a limit to speech set in the pleroma, so that they are silent about the incomprehensibility of the Father. But they speak about the one who wishes to comprehend him. So it sounds as though the eons worship or give glory to the Father. They can't give it directly because they have no clue what the Father's about. But they can look on their brother eon. They can look on other eons and see the beauty of music. Let's say they're looking upon an eon of, of vocal talent, of beautiful vocal ability. And they can give glory to the Father by praising the vocal ability of that eon because the glory is being reflected to the Father. And in that manner, they praise both the eon, in this case, the one of vocal ability, and they praise the Father at the same time because they're getting a glimpse into glory that way. That makes good sense to me. So we can think of like, um, let's say, beautiful classical music, beautiful classical music, the kind where the composer believes they were only practically automatic writing from the angels, right? That they're transcribing the beauty of the ethereal plane in this music, that they're hearing it and writing it down. Well, that's inspired. That's inspirational music. And we, when we listen to that music, we are inspired as well, because we can see the glory of the Father through whom this music was inspired. So it's a way of seeing the Father by appreciating the music. But that's, you know, that is only if that music is inspired. Not all music is inspired, not by the Father. So that it might be in this way, the one who wished to give honor does not say anything to him about this, except only that there is a limited speech set in the Pleroma, so that they are silent about the incomprehensibility of the Father, but they speak about the one who wishes to comprehend him. In that case example I just gave, through his music, right? Carrying on. It came to one of the eons, and this is the one that we are calling Logos in this Valentinian Gnosticism. It came to one of the eons that he should attempt to grasp the incomprehensibility and give glory to it, and especially to the ineffability of the Father. Since he is a Logos of the unity, he is one, though he is not from the agreement of the totalities nor from him who brought them forth, namely the one who brought forth the totality, the Father. Okay, so they're saying this guy, Logos, does not represent the agreement of the entirety of the Pleroma, nor the agreement or the intent of the Father and the Son. This eon was among those to whom was given wisdom so that he could become pre-existent in each one's thought. By that which he wills, will they be produced. So this Logos, it is saying, in all of his offspring, when he makes aeonic love to his neighbors by giving glory to the Father together and praising the traits of the Father as revealed through the other eons, that when he and his fellow eon fruit and create some new little eon that 
those creations, those new eons that continue to populate the Pleroma now, I think in a special subsection, I think in a section, they are not the original eons that were the differentiations of the Son and the Father. These are now a next generation of eons of the Pleroma, but still ethereal, still up above. And I'm thinking they're populating paradise, you see. That second wave of eons, produced by the eons mingling and giving glory together, those are called emanations. Anyway, all now of Logos's children, or little sub-eons, will also have wisdom, will be pre-existent in each one's thought. By that which he wills, will they be produced. Therefore, he received a wise nature in order to examine the hidden basis, since he is a wise fruit. Like what we do here at Gnostic Insights, right? We examine the hidden basis. For the free will, which was begotten with the totalities, and totalities is another word for eons, so all of the eons have free will, because the Father has free will. And they are all of the Father, see? So the free will, which was begotten with the totalities, was a cause for this one. And that this one being Logos such as to make him do what he desired, with no one to restrain him. So Logos was loaded with free will, as are all of the eons. Carrying on, the intent then of the Logos, who is this one, was good. When he had come forth, that is when he was hatched by whatever eon cooked him up, when he had come forth, he gave glory to the Father, even if it led to something beyond possibility, since he had wanted to bring forth one who is perfect from an agreement in which he had not been and without having the command. Okay, so the totalities didn't go along with the plan, and neither did the Father. So he didn't have the command of the Father, and he didn't have the agreement of the totalities, but he still wanted to give forth a perfect creation a perfect pleroma that would be able to give full glory to the Father all at once in its totality. And because he didn't understand that this was not possible. Carrying on, this eon was the last to have been brought forth by mutual assistance. And he was small in magnitude. And before he begot anything else for the glory of the will and in agreement with the totalities, he acted magnanimously, from an abundant love, and set out toward that which surrounds the perfect glory. For it was not without the will of the Father that the Logos was produced, which is to say, not without it will he go forth. But he, the Father, had brought him forth for those about whom he knew that it was fitting that they should come into being. See, all this time we've been blaming the fall on this ignorant, willful, egoic eon, logos. But now the tripartite's actually admitting that, honestly, it wasn't without the knowledge and will of the originator, of the great father, because, of course, nothing can exist without the father's will. And we inherited that will, and it passed down through 
through all of us. We all have it too. But here we're a level above ourselves and we're still talking about eons. And it's saying that the Father allowed him to do this, to have this great fall. For those about whom he knew, that is the Father, that it was fitting that they should come into being. And, well, heck, that's us. That's us. So we were part of the plan. We're not accidents. Hey, we're no mistake. The Father knew this from the beginning, and he allowed Logos to fall from the ethereal plane on purpose so that that gaggle of uh, baby eons that have all been formed through agreement in that first wave of eonic births up there in the paradise, so they could come here too. But they'd have to be wise. And that's who we are. We have the same names, it says, as those eons in the Pleroma. Or more precisely, as those emanations in the Pleroma. The emanations is the second generation of eons. And they have names, and we have the same names as those guys. We are the fractals of those guys. We do pre-exist in a different plane, in a different ethereal plane. And they're still hanging around up there waiting for us to return. We are their fruit. Okay, that's probably enough for this episode. So be sure to tune back in a week from today to pick it up here and we'll find out the answer to the question why the broken Logos wasn't just abandoned down here after the fall, why those second-order fruit were sent down to enliven the universe. Until then, onward and upward, and God bless. <laughs>